Well, for the last six months, while our senior pastor has been on sabbatical, we have had the great privilege of being ministered to by a number of wonderful guest speakers. It's my privilege this morning to introduce to you our uh, final guest speaker, guest speakers this morning. And what a delight it is for me to introduce to you Mark and Lurie Pickup. They have closely followed the major issues of our time, and we're going to be ministered today by them around one of the great major issues that is deep in the heart of God. They're going to share their story with us, including the fact that in 1984, Mark was diagnosed with degenerative multiple sclerosis, and recently he was diagnosed with cancer and will be having surgery in September. Lurie and Mark have journeyed as a couple through the terrors of this serious neurological disease, and they found meaning in their suffering when viewed in the light of Christ's passion and his death and resurrection. And in this context, they discovered a reason and a purpose for their pain. Mark and Lurie are born-again Christians who have become committed to the cause of life and defense of the vulnerable. For more than 15 years, Mark has spoken across the United States and Canada promoting the sanctity, the dignity, and the equality of all human life. He has addressed politicians and legislative committees, both Canadian and American, university forums, hospital medical staffs, religious and denominational leaders, community groups, and organizations about the critical importance of protecting all human life from conception to natural death. Mark served on the Ethics Committee for the University of Alberta Hospital. He's a widely published writer on bioethical and Christian issues. Is a member of the Board of Reference of the Christian Institute on Disability for Joni and Friends in California, and is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Monsignor Bill Irwin Award for Ethical Excellence. Lurie is a former executive director of the Alberta Pro-Life Association. And Mark and Lurie are members of an advisory committee to Archbishop Richard Smith, a committee that was struck by the Archbishop to advise him on strategies to resist euthanasia and assisted suicide. Mark and Lurie have been married for 38 years. They have two adult children, five grandchildren. They're going to speak to us today on the great issue facing all of Canada and indeed much of the world and us as Christians, the sanctity of life. We are deeply privileged to have them here with us this morning. And so will you join me in prayer for their ministry? Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, you have called each one of us here in your sovereign plan for our lives to hear the words that your servants will speak to us. Some of these words will be hard to hear. Give us grace to receive what your spirit would communicate to us. Fill us with love and compassion because of what we hear. Shape our lives to become like Christ because of what we hear. May the circumstances of our life going forward bring honor and glory to you 
because of what Mark and Lurie will share with us this morning. Fill them with your spirit that the words that we are receiving today would not fall on deaf ears, but would be energized by your divine life. In your wonderful name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. Please welcome Mark and Lurie Pickup. Do you believe that all human life has value or just some human life? And if just some human life, which human lives? For what reason? Who decides? Did you know that today in Canada, one in five pregnancies ends in abortion? It has not always been this way. For centuries, abortion was considered a serious crime. The Hippocratic Oath dating back thousands of years forbade abortion and euthanasia. Ancient and persistent common law traditions that are based in Christianity dating back to the Middle Ages viewed abortion as a grave crime. In 1802, England enacted into law what had been considered criminal by custom for centuries and made abortion a criminal act. Considering abortion on demand as a right, as Canada and the United States do, is a recent development and a deviation from the course of human history. It violates biblical moral standards. For example, one only needs to consider God's commandment, thou shalt not murder. Canada began to move away from this ideal, this ancient ideal, and by accepting abortion into public policy and law beginning in 1969. Even though biological science had proven decades earlier that human life begins at conception. Abortion advocates ignored this fact and assured the public and politicians that a change to the law would not result in a floodgate being opened for abortion. They were wrong. It triggered an unprecedented and terrible holocaust of the most vulnerable members of society, unborn babies. The numbers on the slide behind me speak for themselves. Things got so bad that by 1982, abortions outnumbered live births in the city of Toronto. Today in Canada, there are close to 100,000 abortions each year, all paid for by taxpayers. In Alberta, there are over 10,000 abortions performed annually. An abortion can be obtained for any reason or no reason. 98% of abortions are not medically required. You can have as many as you want. You don't even need a referral. Just call up the Kensington Clinic and make an appointment. What is the true extent of abortion's tragedy? Well, of course, the most obvious tragedy is the death of a baby developing in the womb of its mother. But that is only the tip of the iceberg of human tragedy. Abortion kills conscience, both for the individuals directly involved and the collective conscience of a community and even entire nations. 
It presumes we can take the life of an unborn child that does not fit into our plans or inconveniences us. It perverts the ideal of human equality and the concept of universal human rights, the first of which is the right to life. The right to life is the first and highest human right, because every other human right depends upon it. Without the right to life guaranteed to other human rights, become uncertain. In 1971, I became pregnant at the age of 17, and Mark was the baby's father. I was living with my grandparents at the time. I was terrified. What would I say to them? What would we say to Mark's mom? What would other people in town think? Like most young couples in love, we spent the majority of our time together. Mark was the focal point of my life. I was abs absolutely devoted to him and knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him. Once I broke the news to my grandmother that my period was late, she immediately booked an appointment with a local doctor to have a pregnancy test done. The test came back positive. My initial reaction was both fear and excitement. I thought about marriage. I thought about our lives together. I thought about struggling financially. But most of all, I thought about our love for each other. I knew exactly what I wanted. But did Mark? When the two of us were alone, before anybody else became involved in our decision-making, we spoke of marriage, the excitement of a new beginning. We began talking about baby names. Yes, we were both scared, but we still dreamed of a future together, along with our baby. Then others became involved. My grandmother began speaking about abortion. To be honest, I didn't know what an abortion was. Mark's mother turned her back on me and treated me like I was a piece of trash that had come into her son's life and took away his innocence. In other words, I was the cause of this pregnancy. She told me I had made my bed and I could lie in it. I remember she wouldn't even walk on the same side of the street as me. I was filled with shame. I didn't have a friend in town other than Mark. Immense pressure was put on me to have an abortion. I was not provided with any information on how an abortion was performed or how the baby was dismembered throughout the abortion by vacuum suction. I was not given any alternatives or any specific information on adoption or homes for unwed mums. Remember, there was no such thing as the internet. The people I trusted said abortion was the best thing, it was the right thing. And if the government was going to pay for it, then it must be okay. At 17 years old, it didn't take much convincing. Under Canada's abortion law of the time, I was required to go through what they called a therapeutic abortion committee. Therapeutic? What a farce. The committee was a rubber stamp process. There was no therapy for me in it and there certainly was no therapy for my baby in it. I was booked to see a psychiatrist who spent about two minutes with me, ensuring that he asked me if this is what I wanted to do. I had already been coerced into uh, believing that this was my only way out of this problem, by friends, family, and boyfriend. I was placed on a waiting list at a hospital that had performed abortions. They called just in the nick of time, around the three-month mark since I had conceived. It was late November. 
The Christmas season was drawing near. The hospital where my abortion was performed was decorated with festive colored lights. There was nothing festive for me in this. There was nothing festive for my baby either as I walked through those double doors of that hospital in that late and terrible afternoon. I remember the sadness I felt, the sadness and fear that I felt. Looking back now, I know that if someone had given me an option, given me a hand, a loving embrace, I would have continued my pregnancy. But only the abortionist reached out to me. The pressure was on, and I felt I had no other choice. I made the wrong choice. I spent the night at the hospital in preparation for the abortion. I remember hearing cries of newborn babies down the hallway, and I was puzzled at why would they, they would place me within earshot of all these babies crying. There was a nurse on duty that night, I wish I could meet her now, who came to my bedside twice in the middle of the night. She touched my shoulder softly and asked me if this is what I was really wanted to do. Oh, you have no idea how I wanted to reach out to her and say, no, I love this baby, but I was afraid to change my mind. That meant that I would let everybody else down. How would I face them if I didn't go through with it? The next morning, I was rolled down to the operating room, and the procedure was performed. A nurse asked me to count to 10, or from 10 backwards. Oblivion. Just before coming to, I remember hearing the sound of something that sounded like a vacuum cleaner. That sound is forever embedded in my memory. I imagine my baby being caught up in that machine. A few hours later, I was given a small meal and told that if I could keep the food down, then I was free to leave the hospital. I threw up the meal, covered up the evidence, my ride had arrived, and I was on my way back home. After the abortion, I felt relieved, but very sad. I went to see Mark where he worked, and we talked for a short time. The stress was evident in both of us. Six months later, we broke up. I moved on with my life and denied ever having gone through the abortion. Two years later, Mark and I met again, and we eloped. Family relations were not good, but we were still in love. Three years after that, our daughter was born. The minute I saw her, I realized that she was not my first child. Memories of my abortion came flooding back. And when I looked into the eyes of my daughter, I often wondered if the child we aborted would have looked like her. My daughter was a beautiful baby, and she's a beautiful woman today. Let me share a small grief that persists even 40 years later. Mothers will understand. Every Christmas season, Memories of my abortion always come flooding back to me. If Christmas lights twinkle in a certain way in late afternoon shadows, I have a flashback to my feelings of fear and aloneness that day so long ago. Those feelings mingle and confuse my joy of the Christmas season and the meaning of Advent. My first child would have been 40 years old today and a contributing member of society. Today in Canada, there is close to 100,000 abortions each year, and they are all paid for by your tax dollar. There is an abortion clinic in Edmonton. They have a booming business. Every day, a steady stream of women enter that terrible place. Later, I see some of them come out pale and unsteady. Some of them stagger into the back alley and throw up. 
And I think to myself, nothing has changed in 40 years. Women are still uninformed, kept in the dark about the real effects of abortion. Like lambs led to slaughter, their babies are sacrificed on the altar of so-called sexual liberation. Women are left to pick up the pieces of their life-changing decisions that may haunt them for years, like it did me. The abortionist pockets his $600, and the woman swallows her internal poverty. Some freedom, some choice. After 25 years after my abortion, I learned that in 1929, my grandmother became pregnant before marriage. She lived in a small town and suffered humiliation and was ostracized by the community. I honestly believe she thought she was doing the right thing in directing me toward abortion. She was trying to save me from the people's cruelty like she suffered. She had no idea about the long-lasting effects of abortion. My grandmother may have suffered humiliation of having a baby out of wedlock, but I suffered sorrow and grief for having killed my baby. Neither of these scenarios are God's plan. Children should be born into the love and security of a family. Sex should be reserved for marriage. That is where sexuality is legitimately expressed. In 1984, Mark became incurably ill with multiple sclerosis. It's degenerative and has disabled him, as you can plainly see. I vowed to protect him when the time came that he could not protect himself. You see, we now live in a society that is advocating the killing of people like my husband. This time, I will stand up for the vulnerable. Euthanasia advocates keep trying to bring their agenda to Canada, and they are very close to getting their way. Yes. I pressured Laurie to have that abortion. But abortion has the consequences for men, too. Sooner or later, it was certain that I would have to face the fact that I did not protect my child, that my hands were bloody, too. A terrible day came when my conscience could be silenced no more. And like God said to Cain, what have you done? The blood of your baby cries out from the ground to me. I couldn't even claim ignorance. My heart broke. I knew that our baby was not a clump of tissue. You see, my father kept in his library a life science series of books. One was called Growth, that's it there. It was published in 1965. I remember as a 12 or 13 year old boy sitting with my parents and marveling at these very early photographs of prenatal development. Some of these photographs date back to 1957. The baby shown at the very end of the series is now at least 47 years old. When we had our abortion in 1971, I knew what we were doing. Somewhere deep within my heart, I knew that we were choosing darkness rather than light. It was our child conceived in the darkness of night that was developing in God's light. The Bible says in Psalm 139 that God knows and lovingly watches over the child developing in its mother's womb. And that was just read earlier. God knows the child even before it's being formed in the womb. Jeremiah 1.5 God 
mentions the baby by name. Isaiah 49.1. God's presence with the unborn child was illustrated when John the Baptist, still an unborn child within his mother Elizabeth, leapt when she heard the voice of Mary who was carrying our Savior. Now perhaps somebody is thinking it was different for spiritual titans like Jeremiah and Isaiah and John the Baptist. But please consider Malachi 2.1 which says, Have we not one Father? Has not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? We should not forget God's ancient proclamation at the very beginning of the human race. He said, let us create man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Every human being bears the indelible image of God. Every human being is endowed with a natural dignity that begins with the very spark of conception. It seems so fitting that now it is me who is vulnerable in a society that will not protect its unwanted or inconvenient convenient preborn children. Indications are that soon it may not protect the incurably ill and disabled people either, people like me. There was a time when I was healthy, able-bodied, and athletic. Now, I'm chronically ill, disabled, and weak. But the journey from there to here has been long and painful. There were times when I would have given up had I not been surrounded by people who loved me. I can honestly see how a person can despair and want to die in the isolation of suffering. But I cannot even imagine someone agreeing to the suicide of another. What abandonment that is. I was diagnosed with MS at the age of 30, and it's been slowly destroying physical function for more than 28 years. At about the two to three year point with MS, my grief was so profound, my sorrow was so sharp, my heartache so deep, that my judgment became clouded. If, a suicide, if assisted suicide had been available in the mid-1980s, and if I had not been enveloped by the love of God and the love of my family, I may have taken my life at a low point. I'm so glad I didn't do that. Larie was and is utterly committed to the value of all life. She believes that love is a choice, an act of the will, more than unstable feelings and sentimentality. Larie has loved me unconditionally. She knew that I needed to be able to safely grieve and have the freedom to cry out and not be helped with a death wish that I might have sought at my lowest point. You see, people need to grieve a loss. They need to know that there are people around them who will uncompromisingly hold up the value of their lives even when they have ceased to believe in their own value. 
They need help to rediscover that natural human dignity even when they've lost sight of it. That natural human dignity does not come from our circumstances, our abilities, or our sentience. It comes from merely being. Rene Descartes may have said, I think, therefore I am. To his premise, I respond, no. We are, therefore we matter. It was important for me to know that I was loved by someone who was adamantly committed to my natural human dignity. And I found that someone in Lurie. But she too was suffering. Please understand that it is not just the sick and the disabled who suffer. Those who love them suffer too, sometimes more excruciatingly. There is a special torment experienced by those who watch a loved one suffer. To see disease rack their bodies and souls increases the sum total of suffering, because I suffer too. I believe it is harder to watch degenerative disability torture and break my loved one than to actually suffer the disease. I watched my grandparents and now my mother suffer infirmities associated with extreme age, such as blindness, Parkinson's disease, cancer, and now heart failure. Mark lives with the real symptoms of degenerative multiple sclerosis, which have their limits, but I am left to witness it all and imagine. Imagination has no limits. I believe it is easier to be than to watch. Despite countless trials, love has prevailed, but love is like the two sides of a precious coin. The two sides of love are this. It is life's greatest ecstasy, but also the cause of life's greatest agonies and anguish. It is a paradox of love. The 19th century author Victor Hugo said, to love or to have loved, that is enough, ask nothing further. There is no other pearl to be found in the dark folds of life. To love is a consummation. And so it is. And yet as a wife, mother, and grandmother, I want more and I ask further. I want to protect those that I love from pain, emotional hurts, disappointments, and even life as it ends, but I cannot. So often I've sat at the bedside of suffering loved ones and prayed, Lord, give me their pain, as though there is some quota of suffering to be filled which I can bargain over with God. There is not. Romantic love begins with a glance and a hello and ends in tears of goodbye at life's conclusion and separation, or so it should. Life begins with the agony of childbirth, but is quickly forgotten by the power of love, such as the love of a mother for her children. When Mark and I, were, uh, when I, when Mark and I married, he was healthy and active. For the first 11 years of marriage, he was a super achiever, not only in his career, but with family life. He was my superman. After being diagnosed with MS, his career stalled, and he was often too sick to participate in family activities that he had previously led. Our children were seven and five years old when Mark was diagnosed. They had difficulty understanding why their dad could not play and be active like he used to be. At the time that Mark was diagnosed with MS, I didn't know what the disease was. 
I had no idea of the impact it would have on our future. And so I began to research the medical literature and even visited a few auxiliary hospitals to see if I could pick out the people with MS. I noticed the canes, the crutches, the wheelchairs, the scooters, the van contraptions, curb cuts. MS meant disability. I looked into the faces of loved ones of patients with MS and I wondered if I could face the heartbreak and hurt. My initial reaction was anger. It was irrational, but my immediate response was anger. How could Mark do this to me? How dare he get sick? He was supposed to be the strong one. I was the weak one. If one of us was to get sick, it should be me. I could cope better with the disease. I could just slink away from the world. It would be okay. I was angry, sad, and bitter. But most of all, I was afraid. I wanted to correct the fate God had allowed by trying to convince him that he'd made a mistake. I can't do this, I cried. I cannot sit back and watch this, Lord. I pleaded with God to give me the MS. Mark's faith was stronger than mine, his personality stronger than mine, his body was stronger, his ability to make a living was better than mine. Couldn't God see that? I was so angry with Mark and God. I felt cornered and so, left, uh, and so let down by life. Mark's MS started changing him. I began to gauge the distance between benches and shopping malls in case he needed to sit with exhaustion. Then one afternoon I looked on in horror as my husband began to crawl up the stairs in our bi-level home so he could use the washroom. I realized our life had changed and I had to make some decisions. The first decision I had to make was whether I was prepared to stay in my marriage. Many times Satan told me that there was an easier way out. You're still young. The kids will get over it. He whispered over my shoulder. You can start over like many other women do after divorce. The temptation continued. You can get help from other family members. They understand. Even people at my work asked me why I was staying in my marriage. It did not take long to realize I needed to get serious with God and ask for his help if I was going to stay on this wild MS roller coaster ride. My first prayer was to ask for a wheelchair accessible home so we could begin our new life together. God, Mark, me, and the children. We needed a house that would allow him to move about without struggle, a home that would take us far into this disease. Where the MS was going to take us, we did not know. We had to trust God. My prayer was two-sided. I had always longed for, a, for permanence, a place to call home. As a child, I was moved from pillar to post throughout Canada. I didn't want my children living like gypsies. There was nothing I wanted more than a stable home, a permanent address, and an apple tree in the backyard. The Lord knew this had been my deepest wish. And so in 1987, God answered a need and a prayer. He provided us with a wheelchair-accessible home in Beaumont, just down the hill from a historic old church. During difficult times of MS attacks, Mark seemed to find comfort sitting near the apple tree in the backyard, looking up at the hill at the old church and listening to the sound of its bell. 
It seemed to draw his heart closer to God. God has enveloped me with such a love, with, with his love in such a way that I don't need a Superman husband anymore. I must admit, though, when I hear a noise in the night, I still send Mark out in his wheelchair, worrying into the darkness, swinging his cane to protect us from the boogeyman. <laughs> what more could I ask for? Our home has become a meeting place for family occasions where our children and grandchildren gather. Every August, we gather in the backyard to pick apples from the tree. Occasionally, I reflect on what began with abortion, the denial of life and love's potential to blossom, both human and, div and divine. It started a pilgrimage to regain the meaning of life and love. Nobody has the right to decide what human life is sacred or not sacred. Nobody has the right to kill another human life, regardless of that life's state or stage. God is our creator. Only he can decide when it concludes. Not only is this consistent with centuries of Western moral code, it is what God sets out in his holy Bible, beginning in the book of Genesis. We left a Bible study at the uh, foyer for you to have a look at and take home. All human life is sacred for no other reason than it bears the indelible image of God. Earlier, I posed the question, what is the true extent of abortion's tragedy? Perhaps this is abortion's greatest tragedy. The gift of life, with its limitless potential, is denied, returned to the giver of life, unopened, unwanted, unexplored, and unrevealed. Nobody has the right to rob another life of its potential, Abortion did not liberate us. It broke our hearts and make, made Mark and me poorer, much poorer. It was on the foundation of a broken and contrite heart, contrite spirit, first with abortion and later with a serious and crippling disease, that Christ began to teach us the love and the purpose of life. Out of our regret and sorrow grew understanding. We are loved and forgiven. I'm convinced the Lord has allowed the MS to continue so that we grow spiritually and learn to depend upon God completely. I've become convinced that divine love is the only thing that matters. To abide in Christ's love and reflect his love to a lost and hurting world, that's where the real meaning of life is to be found. Euthanasia advocates speak about death with dignity as though it's something that is bestowed upon a person with poison or dehydration when they're at their lowest point. That is not dignity. That is a profound abandonment. Dying with dignity is not an event. It is a process. The end result of having lived with dignity. Euthanasia proponents talk about quality of life as a determinant for euthanasia. Let me tell you something about quality of life. It changes. When I was 25 years old and healthy and athletic and had an upwardly mobile career, if someone had told me that one day I would be like this, that I couldn't even be active with my children, I would have said, there's no quality of life in that. But today, at the age of 59, my life does have quality. Why? The standard for quality of life has changed. Today, what gives my life quality is to love and to be loved. 
and to think, however foolish it may be, that I still have a contribution to make. Euthanasia advocates talk about personal autonomy, but personal autonomy is diametrically opposed to community. You cannot have both. Euthanasia proponents say that people have a right to make autonomous choices about the time and the place of their deaths, as though it only affects the individual. But decisions are never made in a vacuum. They always affect others. If I opt for assisted suicide, it will not affect just me. It will affect my wife, my children, and my grandchildren. It will affect my doctor because I'll ask her to stop being a healer and start being an executioner. And in a small but not uncertain way, it will affect my nation by helping to entrench the notion that there is such a thing as a life unworthy to be lived. No, I do not have a right to ask for assisted suicide. If we believe in interdependence and community, then I do have a right to expect the best pain management and palliative care available. But not even in my chronic illness and advanced MS do I have a right to assisted suicide. I still have a responsibility to the common good and to posterity. I must not make decisions that will affect the sanctity, dignity, or equality of other human life. Abortion denies life. So does euthanasia. A culture of death has emerged in the 21st century. There is a vital witness for Christians to play by ensuring that women in crisis pregnancies are welcomed with their unborn children into our churches and the greater human family. No woman should have to choose between the life of her child, her education, or career. Christ's limitless love invokes upon us the important job to educate the public about the natural dignity of people with chronic or terminal diseases and disabilities, those whose quality of life the world may judge to be futile. All of these people are in reality indispensable in, to our communities. Their lives are full of purpose and meaning. A civilized society is called to embrace all human life, from conception to natural death. It is only when the lives of the vulnerable are valued and protected, and dying is treated, treated as the last phase of living, in which the bonds of humanity are strengthened, can society legitimately claim to be compassionate and enlightened. Center Street Church is leading the way in Calgary by reaching out to those whose lives are vulnerable. And Lorie and I are privileged to be in your midst. Continue to serve women in crisis pregnancies and their babies, the severely disabled and their families, and those who are dying and their loved ones. Let them all know that they are welcome here at Center Street Church in the name of our Lord. Talk to your MPs and let them know that you expect Canada not only to maintain but enhance and strengthen its laws against euthanasia and assisted suicide. Always remember that every life has meaning. Every human life matters. Human meaning and belonging are found in Christ. 
And as was said earlier at a personal level, I was recently told that I have cancer. And so Larry and I must trust God again. He has brought us this far through many trials. And we must be content with what he has in store for us now. And I must remember that Jesus told us to take up our cross daily. I found meaning in my cross because I found meaning in his cross. And at the foot of that cross, Larry and I found divine love. In our brokenness, we found forgiveness and hope. This is not unique to Larry and I. God wants everyone to love and trust his son and spend eternity with him. You are God's emissaries. Take that message out there. The world needs to hear it. Thank you. Pastor Dirks. Please be seated. We are so very grateful to God this morning for sending us Mark and Marie, whose message is so profoundly important for each one of us to hear. And I'm sure that some of you, because of your personal life circumstances, are going to want to connect with Mark and Marie this morning. So they're just going to exit the stage right now and head off around, and uh, they're going to be available in the atrium to talk to you if you would like to talk to them. Will you stand with me now as we bring our time to a close? Were you troubled by some of what you heard this morning? It wasn't an easy message to hear. Sometimes the word of God is not easy to receive. It challenges us. It even creates internal tension and pain sometimes as we hear it. And each time God speaks to us, he wants to stir us up that we would be the people of God that he has called us to be. He wants more from us than just talk, talk Christianity. He wants people who are profoundly committed to Christ and who will courageously live out what it means to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Mark and Lurie are great examples of that for us. May each one of us take seriously what we have heard this morning and step out from this place and be agents of love and redemption and mercy and grace and compassion in our world. May that be true of each one of us. Shall we pray? And now, Heavenly Father, we want to express to you our gratitude for calling us to yourself through our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing hope into our lives in the midst of difficult circumstances 
through our loving Savior who died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and brings hope to each one of us. Hope that our sins can be forgiven. Hope that our lives can be rearranged and re-engineered to be the people of God you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, for the great opportunity and privilege that is ours to follow Christ and to serve you. Help each one of us to do that with passion and enthusiasm and grace and dignity. Help each one of us to love everyone, the marginalized, the poor, the special needs, the weak, the suffering, the dying. May it be true that Center Street Church will be a lighthouse in our city and in our world. For your glory and your grace, we pray, Lord Jesus. And now may that grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and may that great love of God the Father and that wonderful fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide on each one of us until we see each other again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God bless you all.